So as a result, these buildings are about community and connection. So what we're seeing is a paradigm shift of what used to be two thirds of the space for seats, dedicated heads down work, and then breakout spaces for conference rooms. No, this is a conference center now. So now it's two thirds about meeting spaces, brainstorming rooms, war rooms, learning environments. This is where we come together and learn the next and innovate together. Um, or sell. These are, this is what's going to be predominant. And think about it. If you go to a conference center, is your first question, hey, where's my desk? What's that look like? No, I need a touchdown spot. I need a place where I may need to do or make a call. So that's not the reason I came in. If I only came in to do that, I can stay at home. Welcome back, everyone, to the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization Show, the home of Googleization Nation, where we talk with HR and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology, business, and people. Here are your hosts, Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization. I'm Ira Wolf. Thanks for being part of Googleization Nation. And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work that's confronting business leaders and people today. And our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow as we explore the ever-changing convergence of business, technology, and people. This episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization is sponsored by our partner, Y Institute your personal and professional GPS for a meaningful life and purpose. You'll hear more about the Y Institute and their Y operating system in during the show. On today's episode, we're going to take you on a bit of a commercial workspace odyssey. So buckle up, folks. We have Brian Berthold from Cushman and Wakeman. They are a leading global real estate service firm. Brian will be joining us in just a few minutes to talk about the current and future state of where and how people work, the conversation isn't going to be what you think it is because most conversations and discussions today seem to focus on remote versus hybrid versus bringing people back to the office. And all those conversations are centered on the location of work. But those conversations leave out the big elephant in the room, flexibility. And flexibility means a lot of th different things to a lot of different people. And when it comes to the future of commercial workspace, flexibility is about as clear as mud. But what does this mean for future office space, more empty offices, vacant buildings? What does it mean for downtown businesses and those that real estate? And what about new workspace designs? Say that three times fast, new workspace designs. You're going to want to stay tuned, which leads me right into today's perfect labor storm segment. This is where on each episode, we focus on a disruptive, surprising, and worrisome trend that we believe you should know. Here's today's perfect labor storm. Let me share a survey that popped up just minutes before we went on the air. It was released by Quantum Workplace. They surveyed over a million workers, and they found that only 10% of the respondents equated flexibility with location, such as the power to work. There are six possible flexible work arrangements that workers told Quantum they'd prefer. Five of them don't require a home office or a corporate office. Flexibility of time, days worked, 
scheduled shifts, tasks performed, even the who to work with. Now, I don't know if we're going to get into that part, but I'm sure of when will offices be occupied, what days will they be occupied, what type of shifts will be available. This is going to be important not only for the businesses, but also for the surrounding support businesses. This defines our workspace odyssey and executives and business owners are got to be asking, how does impact, how does this impact the space where people will work and what needs to happen to ensure increased productivity and engagement? So we're going to be talking with Brian about Cushman and Wakeman. They just released a report on commercial real estate and there's over a billion, 1 billion square feet of office space, which will be vacant by 2030 in the U.S. alone. That's nearly 20% of the total workspace. And according to the same report, the concerns aren't limited to just how much space may be vacant. It's also that 25% of that space will become obsolete. And according to Morgan Stanley, the valuations of all that workspace, that office and retail properties, could fall as much as 40%. Yeah, and Ira, Cushman and Wakefield, they're leading the way with a lot of the research and surveys on what does the future of, of our physical workspaces look like? And this is really important because it sounds like the clock is ticking on this next domino falling and the chain reaction of events that are surrounding the future of work. When I first met Brian just a couple months ago and we had a conversation around this, he totally enlightened me. I know this is going to come as a shock, but I am not a commercial real estate expert. Brian is. And so having him along with all of the the resources and supports from Cushman and Wakefield, bringing those insights today is going to be really helpful. And you know, it got me to thinking. Just this last weekend, I started watching the Back to the Future movies with my two older sons for the very first time. And I totally forgot that the opening scene for the first Back to the Future movie, the opening scene is a Rube Goldberg machine that Doc Emmett Brown had at his house. When Marty shows up, the machine is designed to ultimately open a can of wet dog food and dump it in his dog's bowl. And the dog's name cleverly is named Einstein. For those who maybe haven't heard of the term Rube Goldberg machine, I can guarantee that you've seen one before. The term is is for things that are popular. You see them on social media where something like starting a stack of dominoes that then hits a bowling ball that goes down a ramp, you get the picture. All of those those things happen, and it turns a simple task into an overly complicated chain of reactions that it takes in order for that simple task to be done. So that's the opening scene in Back to the Future. Now, part of the reason that it's so fascinating to watch these Rube Goldberg machines is because they're taking something simple like opening and dispensing dog food in a bowl, and they're making it way too complex. And doesn't it kind of feel like that's where we're kind of what we're doing right now with the future of work? To a certain extent, it feels like we're maybe making things a little bit harder on ourselves at times by trying to hold on to the old ways of doing things. In this case, maybe mandating people back to the office simply because it's how things were done in the past. Fresh thinking means that we may need to adjust local tax policy, commercial real estate strategy investment, and even consider redesigning or repurposing old workspaces to revitalize those areas, particularly downtown areas. And so luckily for you, our listeners today, we've got an expert in this space who's going to help us make sense of it all and help us prepare for these looming changes that are ahead for how we think about our workspaces. So without further ado, let's give a warm Googleization Nation welcome to today's guest from Cushman and Wakefield, 
Brian Myrtle. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you with us today. And and like we said, this is going to be kind of groundbreaking territory for us on the show to really dig in on, on what all these changes mean. But before we get to the meat of that, let's learn a little bit about you to begin with. How did you get an interest in this area? And tell us a little bit of what you do at Cushman and Wakefield and how you are helping lead the way and how we redesign and rethink our physical workspaces. Sure. Thanks. I only have an hour, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So my background, I'm a, I'm a licensed architect, the old-fashioned kind of true buildings and what have you. And I joined Cushman about eight years ago, more focused on workplace strategy. My, my background was design strategy and really creating a lot of bricks and mortar solutions for, for clients. But one thing that I realized early in my career and in working, worked through numerous banks over uh, prior to coming here is that in the real estate world, we focus on the bricks and mortar. We first focus on the desk, the conference room, the tech. And there's not a lot of training and understanding of how we actually impact the people that we serve and we're producing these solutions for. In fact, as an architect, I designed many schools and I realized after the fact, I never interviewed a teacher or student while I was doing, you know, shame on me. But as I was working in various banks, I realized that HR was doing their things. We were in real estate. Tech was doing theirs. Maybe they were talking to the business. Seldom did they talk CFO language. And I I just took a step back and said, I'd like to know, I'm an analyst as well, I'd like to know how we're actually impacting the people. So I actually want to turn all these things into KPIs, data, and insight and replace the subjectivity that often business leaders have of what they think is going on by actually getting into the hearts, minds, and souls of our people. So that was something I was actually doing off the side of my desk when I first got here. And that has morphed into the creation of a product we call Experience for Square Foot, where we can actually use employee sentiment to understand, hey, what's going on with design or technology or the services and amenities or the value of a location if for the first time actually measure the experience of people, not just all the stuff we give them. And that's turned into a, a role, believe it or not, I started in April of 2020, focused on a, a global workplace experience role, leading that for Christian. So my focus is understanding human behavior to solve business problems for clients and to study in aggregate what's going on here. What have we learned through the pandemic? and replace that subjectivity with real, true data and insight. I love that, Brian. And of course, Ira and I, we love talking about human behavior too. And so we're going to be excited to dig into this report. I'm curious, just off the top here, were there any things that came out in the Cushman and Wakefield report recently in terms of demographic differences or things that maybe surprised you of how the typical American employee thinks about the workspace? Well, it's interesting. In fact, We've been reporting in aggregate on the global results, and we just stepped back to say, hey, maybe are there regional nuance? So let's take attendance, for example. And I thought this was interesting that here in the, the U.S., the Americas in general, 53% of people still want to work remotely. And our definition is, I want to come in less than one day a week. And then when we moved over to Europe, we found 43% of those people want to be hybrid. That's the majority. They want to come in a day or two a week. 
And then when I went over to Asia Pack and looked at the data there, 63% want to come in three or more days a week. And what's interesting is the differences. So if I start to unpack what's going on in Asia, we have like a third of the people said there are better workplace setups in the office. There's better tech in the office. It's easier to focus in the office. That's actually the conversely true for the other regions. They're saying my setup's better at home, focus more at home. So we're finding, hey, they have the same drivers, but the drivers are actually for leaning in more to the office. So I think as we start to unpack this and learn more, we're still seeing a predominance of people wanting to work remote in the U.S. Now that's driven, majority of the reason is 70% of people are worried about the commute. That's the biggest pain in the butt. We don't see it at that high level in the other regions. And they find it easier to focus. They like the casual environment. And chances are they have good tech and setups at home. So the, the commute keeps rising to the top. But the reasons for the office, what's missing, it's all about community and connection. So what they do want to come in for is to socialize, to collaborate. And it's not just the work. That's, I think, one of the dilemmas we've seen in our data is in a virtual world, we just talk about the stuff we do. Usually with, sorry, I'm late and I got to jump to another call. Well, in the office, you have that pre-meeting, that post-meeting, how was your weekend, socializing, overhearing conversations, that kind of serendipity that can happen and building your relationships. We tend to start narrowing in into the folk, the silo of the group we work in and don't really get exposure to our leaders, to other ways to get mentored and learn. So these are things that we're saying. They want to come in for those reasons. But yeah, here in the Americas, overcoming the commute is probably the biggest hurdle. Hey, Brian, a couple, I had a couple questions from things you just said. So on where people work, the geographic impact of where people work. So it sort of reminds me of going back two years, maybe three years when we first went into lockdown and, and everybody went home. It seemed that people that didn't live in a major city that didn't have that commute were once they got their their IT, their laptops, their networks, and they found a closet or a table or a desk or a, a sofa to work on, they became more comfortable. But people in the city, especially like Manhattan, Los Angeles, they wanted to go back to the office because they often they they shared a 700 square foot apartment with three people or their family or a dog. And 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 so and, and that when you mentioned what was going on in Asia, that reminded me there because they certainly have much smaller living quarters than we do here. So in the U.S., were you able to dig in and break break that down? Did it seem that more metropolitan areas wanted to go back to the office, but more suburban rural areas were okay? Actually, we found it almost the reverse because wow. the the commuting was a lot easier in the suburbs. You know, that wasn't an issue. Whereas people didn't feel safe. A lot of people relied on public transportation to get in. They now in downtown, you gotta pay for parking. There's data out there that says, hey, we saved about eight percent of our paycheck not having to travel in in the cities. So that's something that you got used to. Now having to pay for all that and pay for dry cleaning and parking and all of that is something, a hurdle to overcome. Yeah, in the suburbs, we saw them picking up and starting to come back at a faster pace. So I think the cities and urban areas have to overcome that public transportation and the higher cost of the commute. Yeah, 
Interesting. And I want to go back and really dig into the what, what you said. I, I love this concept, experience, the experience per experience square foot. Per square foot. Yeah. yeah. You know, Jason and I talk about this all the time. I've got five speaking engagements coming up. Everyone's is focused on employee experience and how to improve that. But I love this new metric and, and I'll definitely be including it. So tell, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, how do you, you know, what, how do you measure employee or the experience per square foot? Yeah. And the per square foot, I would say, is a reference to say this is about your work environment. What differentiates us from an employee engagement survey? If you've ever taken one, most employee engagement surveys may have one question on your work environment. Usually it's a safety question or something like that. But when we look, most of the time they're looking at your company, your manager, the job you do, your comp structure, benefits, your colleagues, but they don't get into the work environment. So we decided we want to study that at the same rigor that a lot of these uh, you know, Gallup surveys, Glint surveys do with um, HR engagement. and what we set on a course to do is there were a lot of surveys. We study all kinds of surveys that are out there. And most do ask you about your workplace tech services, all of that. But to me, I'll use scientific terminology. That's the stuff you use in engagement. There was actually no measure on your experience. So through our research, we've got PhD data scientists and people that we've engaged with HR to kind of create our measure of the experience. And it's broken into five components. So picture a two by two grid, work-life balance on your y-axis, you as a person, individual, and working with others on the x-axis. So on this work band across the top, well, we created measures on your ability to focus and feel productive when you're trying to get your work done, your heads down. And then as a team, are we productive when we need to work together and collaborate? Most surveys we found just asked about work. We then actually had a band around life. So are you energized throughout your day? This is your well-being, which we started this survey back in 2017, but COVID really heightened the importance of that measure. And then with a group, are you bonding with your colleagues? Do you have a sense of community? Is this a greater sum of the individual parts? And then a fifth measure that we put in the middle is are we continuously learning and developing? So each of those gets scored and average into your experience for square foot score. And what makes this survey a delight is we still measure all those things, your attributes on design tech and what have you. Then we run these statistical analysis and regressions to say what actually drives those five experience measures. And it's always different. Every market's different, every client, every industry. And I think what's fascinating is we did an analysis that said there's about 40 categories of things on the stuff side, but usually only eight to 10 are driving the experience. So you're spending money on 40 things. I'll tell you the eight or 10 that you should spend your money on. And then on average, of those are doing great. The other half are struggling. Could be a missing amenity, could be something that's subpar. And this is where CFOs and the people that own the uh, purse strings lean in because they realize, you mean there's only four or five things to super invest in? Yes. And, and it's great because now we take that subjectivity of my people don't want a gym or whatever and replace it with what is actually driving people to come to the office. Well, why are people staying at home? What are those obstacles? And let's actually learn about what's going on here. 
And so, Brian, I got to ask the natural follow-up question. What are those four to five things that actually matter? Oh, it's different for every client. You know, Jason, it wasn't going to be. If it were that easy, right. just figure it out, button it up, and you just pay me for the answer. And Once it hits the internet, I'm done. Right. Um, I love that. No cookie cutter answers. Very specific so, for each client. Uh, like we find it's nuances. Like we have nine different demographics. So we'll cut by the business, by are you an individual contributor or next executive, your tenure at the company, what generation are you, your location. So all of these things, we'll even get into gender and ethnicity, which is really a big important of our DEI kind of component. And there are different drivers for each one of those segments. So you may find a headquarters location in LA will have a completely different driver set than say a back office building in Singapore. And it should. You may have operational people, you may have admin people, you may have a sales team. Well, their needs are all unique. So that's why I always say, ignore what you read. Those can be directional, but your company is unique. You're, you as a person's unique, but your team makeup, that's really what matters. I always say coming back to the office is a team-based decision. Some of you want to come in all the time, some never do. But you as a group know when we need to be together, when it's okay to, to stay back. Yeah, I, and I, the parallels between some of this, uh, Jason, I don't know if you, if you were thinking the same thing, but one of our partners is Avanti and a cybersecurity company about two years ago, they started to talk about digital employee experience. And again, it was beyond just does, does the technology work it was how do they feel about it, and uh, you know what was the support level when they needed help. What did that look like? And and even double and triple sign-ins and two and and double factor authentications. You know, was that a good experience or a bad experience? And and when everybody went remote, it's like oh, we got to lock down our systems. But then it was impossible for people to actually log in. It had nothing to do with working mm -hmm. remote or productivity. So they started to look at the digital experience, the employee experience. And what they found is that one out of every four employees was willing to quit because of a bad digital experience, uh, a digital employee experience. Have you, ha has, have you been able to find any correlations with retention or recruitment that related to the experience per square foot? It's our correlations lie in what drives people to come back and what are the obstacles? So one of the biggest challenges is we're all very effective from one chair at home. All my tech works, my laptop, I can do my heads down, I can get on a call. The minute I get into an office, I have to move around. And I remember that taped on the wall webcam, that phone and, you know, it was standard that meetings took 10 minutes to start because we all were trying to connect and get the slide presentation up. Now we notice we just click the Zoom call or the Teams call and we're on, we're live. And what I think the biggest challenge we're finding now on the tech side is how do we make that experience of coming back, not going back in time to what I remember as being suboptimal. So that's really where tech has to step up and create a great experience, be easier to use, easier to find, and adding new dimensions that we don't need at home, like finding people. I was talking to a reservation technology company. So here, one of the things of, hey, what's changed? Well, do we need desk reservations? Are we going to be desk sharing? Yeah, but you got to think differently. 
it, I use a restaurant analogy because I'm coming in to be with my team. So I want to reserve a table for four, like I'm at a restaurant. You wouldn't go and make a restaurant reservation with four individuals and hope that you all pick the same booth. No, I actually want four seats together and I want the reservation system to do that. Otherwise, I come in and you're on a different floor and now I got to tell Ira and Jason, I booked the conference room just so we could talk. No, that's where tech has to step up and realize what's the experience? Are we easy to use? And I would say the majority of people are going to start feeling like guests in their own building. So this is why hospitality and the experience has risen is I don't have a routine anymore. If I'm only coming in a day or two and you say it's guest sharing or reserve a seat, I'm like re getting re-familiar. It's like visiting. Uh, I, I talk about buildings being more community centers at where you're bringing people together. Well, if you go to a community, uh, an event, a conference, you don't know your way around, but there are hospitality minded. There's a concierge. They help you figure things out. So you need to remove all those pain points so that I can be productive. I will say the number one thing that people look for are productivity factors when they come in. So I'm being asked, hey, what are the right amenities? What's the right food? What should we feed people? Is free parking? All these carrots on a stick. You know, they're good for one time. Free bagels on Tuesday will get me there, but not on Wednesday. What I found is, and, and, and it's interesting, like we've had a few clients in a row where you better have two monitors on the desk. That's a deal breaker. Oh. The tech in the conference room, the video hookup better work with teams and allow us to take outside people and the people in the room. I better have an ergonomic chair. People want to be productive as a group. And when they do heads down work, when they come in, the rest of it is tertiary stuff. That's nice to have, but it's not going to, people realize I'm very effective at home. I say, uh, you, I can do my job description at home. So why would I come in? Yeah. And to go with that, Brian, I, I recently saw some studies that said on average, what the, the typical American is saving in time is around 70 minutes per day of drive time is what the typical American was driving to get to and, and back from work. But the other interesting thing with that was the question came up of, okay, can we find out what are they doing with that extra 70 minutes? Turns out the majority of it, they're using toward work. So they're actually putting it back in, reinvesting it in the work that they're doing. And you would hope that, you know, the, the more we all kind of get used to this, the more we have better supports in place, that this will help improve efficiencies and productivity for people as they're working from home. And I'm going to send it back over to you, Brian, because I can tell you've got something you want to share there oh, related to that. <laughs> oh, God, there's a, there's a lot I can unpack uh, uh, with that one. So I'll give you some headline data points, and then I'll match that to the points that you're making. So overall, we've got these common myths that we hear, and I'll kind of work here to dispel them. So the first is we see mandates are on the rise. So let's get all our people in. Let's try to uh, do that. And Ira, you were talking about flexibility. Okay, this is huge. When we measure our experience for square foot, workplace experience insight, we find that there's a 27%. We find a 27% drop in the workplace experience when you try to dictate what location people should work from. So if you say, I need you in the office Tuesdays and Wednesdays, that experience drops 27%. It drops another 28% if you actually tell them when they have to work. So you mentioned time, days, shift, all of that stuff. Yeah, 
if you start to tell people when they have to work and where they have to work, it's an easy button for leaders to think that'll get attendance improved. But the negative impacts on my experience, we're seeing about a 25% drop in employee engagement when you do the same. So huge risk there. But what we have found with productivity over time is it never moved. Productivity has pretty much stayed constant. But if you ask people, they say it's about 75% of people saying they're productive. Two-thirds will tell you they're working more hours. So to your point, Jason, what are they doing with that extra time? It's a work-life balance problem that when we're at home, we tend to work more. We don't know when to turn it off, which is interesting. Pre-COVID, I used to have leaders when we tried to build telecommuting programs saying, well, how do I know they're working when they're home? And it's like, no, you got to worry they're working too much. And the data is just proving its point. And the, the repercussions on this, and this is probably my most worrisome, you know, what do I worry uh, the most about is our well-being. So just to pick this apart, 73% of people in 2019 said they had a good sense of well-being. This is mental health, physical health. It went to 55% in 2020, 46%. In 21, in last year, 39% of people report having a good sense of well-being. So the extra hours, not being together, not having that face time, not learning, not doing all those things outside of just the routines, it's taking its toll on people. And at the end of the day, I think that sense of caring, you mentioned caring, Jason, I think managers need to do a better job just checking in on their people. Don't call on a project call to say, hey, how's it going? You have everything you need. Because I don't think people have really had a natural place to vent or just uh, showcase their own concerns and get their, their heads in a better place. But 39% and still eroding is probably the number one concern leaders and companies should be worried about. That's, that's the burnout factor. You're speaking our language there, Brian. <laughs> I've been trying to get that message out for a long time and I appreciate all the, the, the data and the research that, that you're providing, which also cues this up for the next segment. We're going to take a short break here. For our next segment, we'd like to come back and, and get your perspective on what not only what should companies be doing, but what's that future space look like? We talked about flexibility. So if companies do get it right and they do allow people to have flexible work, not just hybrid, but flexible, they can pick and choose which days they come in. They can come in and, and they have that positive experience. What what does the you know what's the future of commercial real estate look like in that environment? So we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We're here with Brian Berthold from Cushman and Wakefield, and you you're going to want to stay tuned. We'll be right back. For most of us, change is freaking terrifying, and unfortunately, there's no app to adapt. That might change in the not so distant future, but for now, we're on our own. That means we can either accept our default future or reimagine our tomorrow. For those of you who choose default, good luck. Just remember, there's no pause button for change. You can't turn back the clock. And there's no get-out-of-jail-free card in this age of perpetual uncertainty. Like it or not, change will happen all around us. And that change is not becoming just more disruptive and frequent, but volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, or VUCA. Fortunately, you can make change work for you and turn it into your personal and competitive advantage. Reimagine your future to one in which you're living with purpose, you're happy, 
and you're growing, thriving, and flourishing. If you're ready to rewrite your next life chapter and regain control of your destiny in this never-normal world, your journey starts here. Contact the leader in adaptability and making change work for you, your team, and your organization. Ira S. Wolf, adaptability.expert. There's a certain kind of coach who believes what we believe, who leads people to greatness, who gets people unstuck, who unlocks all of your passion. A coach who helps people discover what drives them to tap into their superpowers. That knowing your why is the first step to untap potential, to focus, to breakthroughs. A coach who's looking for a better way. Are you that coach? Hey, welcome back everyone to Geek Skeezers and Googleization. We are talking about the commercial space odyssey. It's happening to commercial spaces. And uh, we've had a fascinating conversation waiting for Brian Berthold from Cushman and Wakefield. Come back. And Jason, the, the, ex the experience per square foot just blows me away. I think we were looking for different types of metrics over time. And I, again, that's a new one to me. It seems pretty obvious though. And one that might get the attention of uh, CFOs and CEOs and, uh, and basically business owners and executives when they're trying to, to measure what can you do for recruitment and retention. No doubt. And Kate Lister can't comes to mind, a friend of ours of the show, the Global Workplace Analytics. We're going to have to get this over to her also because I think there's a lot of overlapping conversations in trying to help senior level leaders understand what they're going to do with physical space and how to make use of it. I mean, I was just blown away by what Brian just shared before we took the break there on combined, if you take the freedom of when to work and where to work, if if people feel like they don't have that choice, their experience drops 56% just with those two things. And so as he was sharing all those things with the experience per square foot, the one word that was sticking out to me is autonomy, freedom. Like ultimately, that's what people now in the future of work are looking for when they're working and they're looking for an employer is they want that flexibility and freedom of when to work and where to work. So I was just totally blown away by that. But uh, Brian, before we we went to the break, welcome back. Um, Ira teed up, you know, another part of the, the conversation that we want to get into also. And that is we kind of have this $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate loan debt that's coming due by 2025. That's way more than anything I understand about commercial real estate, <laughs> but how concerned should we be about that? And ultimately, what should leaders be thinking about as those rents are coming due and thinking about the, the workspace that they need? Oh, it's uh, the million dollar question, or I guess the trillion dollar question, as you put it. Yeah, I think the challenge we have, we've never been through such a transformational time because chances are anyone's work environment pre-COVID, the way it's been sitting there, is not meeting the needs of tomorrow. So first, let's talk about what does tomorrow look like, and then how do we overlay a portfolio on top of that? So there's kind of this trifecta of what's happening. Businesses have changed. So some in some companies, they're shifting their labor around. 
So they've enabled virtual work. They're thinking now of a workplace ecosystem, which is the office, third places, could be flex space or remote working, working from home. So where, where does it make sense that maybe there's certain types of jobs that can stay at home? And if so, let's find high quality labor in a lower cost market than maybe where we've been in the past. So labor is moving around. And then you look at the portfolio, where should those locations be? That can ease the pressure on commutes, be in a desirable neighborhood. Got this whole work-life balance equation of people preferring to have a walkable life where they can live and work in the same zip code. And then lastly, what's happening inside the building? And that's where we're trying to help clients better understand what's the transformation with the inside of and how do we need to adapt. So one way of thinking about it is the primary drivers of what are those reasons people would come in. I mentioned to socialize and to collaborate, but we're also finding people that come into the office three days or more a week are have a higher well-being score. They're getting more time off from work, better work-life balance. And I think it's because you know they close that lid on the laptop, they decompress on a commute, they're more present at home, and they're not just continuing to work longer hours from their home. And so they better work-life balance, access to better tools and more robust tools. Again, we're talking about the digital technology and assuming that those investments are being made. In fact, the companies that are investing in better tech and more cutting-edge tech actually are finding a 56% improvement on their overall experience, have two times more a sense of belonging with the company and feel more connected to the company culture. So there's a lot of advantage to investing in the tech side of things. And then lastly, we haven't talked about it, but feeling part of a part of something, feeling connected to your company culture. So how does the work environment do that? But this is a physical manifestation of your culture. What is interesting is about three quarters of people said they were connected to their company culture pre-pandemic. Right now, that's only a 52%. So only half of the people in our virtual way of working feel connected. So we know the office has value to that cultural haven. Now, we mentioned choice and flexibility. Now, check this out. So that 52%. If you have the choice of when I come in and are trusted by your management and you make those choices, 70% of those people feel connected to company culture. If you live in a mandated environment, it drops to 36. And we hear culture eats strategy for breakfast. So that's something to, it's even actually at its highest point, 77% of people coming in three days or more a week by choice are the most connected. So as a result, these buildings are about community and connection. So what we're seeing is a paradigm shift of what used to be two-thirds of the space for seats, dedicated heads-down work, and then breakout spaces for conference rooms. No, this is a conference center now. So now it's two-thirds about meeting spaces, brainstorming rooms, war rooms, learning environments. This is where we come together and learn the next and innovate together or sell. These are, this is what's going to be predominant. And think about it. If you go to a conference center, is your first question, hey, where's my desk? What's that look like? No, I need a touchdown spot. I need a place where I may need to do or make a call. So 
that's not the reason I came in. If I only came in to do that, I can stay at home. So that's a major change in our designs. Not all buildings are adept at being able to adapt to that kind of new experience. And I'll say there's a people side to this equation too. And this is a big concern I have. So back in the old days, when I, I got hired and my job description existed in the office, think about it as a manager, supervisor, leader, I didn't have to tell you why you had to come in. You came in. Now leaders are in an uncomfortable and, and unusual situation where they actually have to create a sense of purpose for the building and in, an agenda. Hey, I don't go to a conference if I don't know who the keynote is, what the breakout sessions and who else is going. In fact, if you don't plan with your team, we did this research with George Washington University where if you're working from home and only coming in two days a week and you just do it randomly, you have less than a 30% chance of bumping into the people you want to meet. So you actually have to schedule and be planful. It's like going to dinner again. You wouldn't make a reservation and hope the other family members come. And leaders creating the events. Hey, the CFO's here, or we're going to brainstorm on this, or our technology guy's going to teach you on our new ways of using video conferencing. Whatever it is, there has to be these breakout sessions and kind of a, a itinerary for coming in. People will then pick and choose the events and plan their days. Hey, let's go do this learning event in the morning. We'll meet as a team later in the day. So these are new ways of thinking about the space. So that's basically describing it's going to be a different environment. And when we say obsolescence is the new opportunity, there's a third or so of the buildings that can meet this shift. They've got the tech in place. They're in a good neighborhood. They're easy to commute to. They're going to meet this new demand. And then there's going to be a middle layer where you know what, there's investments that need to be made and now it becomes a return on investment exercise to see if the, the payback's there. If I gotta invest X millions, do I get out of it? And then there's those buildings that no matter what you do, put it lipstick on the pig, it's not ever gonna be this group of people coming can be. Now that doesn't mean it's a loser and it's gone. That just means it needs to be repurposed into something that it's more suited for. Now, we all know that, hey, we're not probably going to need as much office space. That just means these buildings that are not in this new kind of vocabulary are going to be repurposed for other needs. And that's where clients have to dig in to figure out which ones of my buildings can provide the new environment. We like to use our experience with square foot data to say, hey, score the experience of every building. Then you know the value of that building and the cog in your ways of working. Identical space may have totally different experiences because of who works there, how long it takes them to get there, and the types of workers that you have in that space. So I said a lot there. No, that was brilliant stuff, Brian. As you were describing that, it made me think kind of the shift we've had in terms of human capital, of how we go about measuring value creation for people and people that are creating value in the marketplace. And it sounds like at Cushman and Wakefield, you all are blazing the trail of helping leaders understand what's the value of the workspaces in terms of what it's providing to the community, for the internal stakeholders and things like that. And I'm glad that you're doing this because as we talked about in the perfect labor storm, 
there's a whole bunch of change we're going through right now and we're going to go through over the next few years. The insights and, and research you all are doing is going to be tremendously helpful for these leaders in understanding whether they need to workspace, how to redesign it or reimagine it, or whether to repurpose it so that we can make sure that you know we try to mitigate the effects of the one and a half trillion dollars of yep. real loan debt that's going to be coming by 2025. But I'm going to kick it back over to Ira real quick. I can't believe we're already coming up near the end of the show. He's got a question that we always like to end with before we get to our final couple segments. Hey, hey Brian, and I just got to tell you, there's some episodes that I just can't wait to re-listen to because it was like, I know I missed something and I would be like, <laughs> I was writing something down and forgot it. And yours is definitely one of them. And I, we, we can go on forever. I'm, yeah, I'm still stuck yeah. on that experience per square foot. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but here's the question. Uh, we, we threw a lot of, of, of questions at you. What's something that you hoped we would have asked you, but that we didn't? Well, I think I started to fill in the gaps if there was something that made me lean into other topics. I'll answer that by just saying, you know, I think the biggest key thing is we used to implement and execute things around real estate. And then we measured the, as I said, I had that passion for wanting to know how this impacted people. And I think what's unique here is we're starting with the impacts on people first. So what's the existing space? What's working from home? How does that impact people? And now let's design the real estate solution around that. And that's my true hope is that this isn't just the satisfaction, feel good, happy you know, survey that we do. We're trying to open up and get leaders to understand in the hearts, minds, and souls of these people, what's working, what's not, what's gonna make you love our company, what's gonna make you thrive as a person. And I think that's that's something that just drives me. That's my passion. And I and remove the subjectivity. This is we're in a day and age with ChatGPT and AI to censor data that it's too expensive to guess and get real estate wrong. In fact, I had a CEO at a bank tell me, you know, I gave them free food, I paid for their parking, I gave them free lunch, and they're still not coming back. Okay, I would never do this with my business guessing. And they're using our survey to say, tell me what's really. And that's what I really am hoping that people spend more time doing. Brilliant, Brian. There's so many, so many incredible nuggets here of wisdom that you shared with our audience. And so before we let you go, we're just going to segue into our last couple segments here as we wrap things up. And the first one is called Hopes and Fears. And so I'd love to hear from you here. What are your hopes for the future and your fears for the future? Well, I, as I said, uh, I, my hope is that we lead hard into caring for the people. We're seeing health crisis and burnout and that we really focus that the work, work can be the number one contributor to poor health, that we really take a hard focus and start with the experience of our workforce, their engagement, be more hospitality minded and caring for them and creating work environments that do that. That's my hope. And I would say my fear is we just go old school and go back to get your butt back at the office and um, you know design things that look pretty in a photograph but aren't functional and are actually hurting us. Because we've got an opportunity here. I, I think you spend less money and you're much more efficient and you know what to do with those leases and your portfolio if you're in tune with your people. And for all of the CEOs and CFOs who are listening to this episode and watching it, Yes, this is Brian Berthold of Cushman and Wakefield. They are in the commercial real estate business. And he's telling you, 
it is bad practice to be mandating people to return to the office. And so we're thankful that as a company that they're leading the vision and helping us all adapt and grow and rethink about this in the ways that we should. And so with that, Brian, we're going to go into our last segment here, which is the lightning round. Just a few questions. Okay. We're going to ask you to get to know you a little bit more. You're not going to get struck by lightning, I promise. <laughs> These are going to be softball questions just to help our audience get to know you a little bit more on a personal level. So let's start with this one. What's a favorite band or a favorite song of yours? My daughter and I, she's a hockey player through college, but you get what you give by the new radicals. That's our pump up song that always gets our spirit. No matter what, we're pumped up to take on the next, next challenge. I love it. And how about this one? If you could pick any superpower, what would you choose? You know, uh, it's interesting. I had somebody, you know, I thought I'm strategic and they do all this. And they said, hey, what's your superpower? And they're like, you're Spider-Man. And I'm like, what in the world? I'm Spider-Man? They're like, you have all these connections. You just make everything come together. And it's what I enjoy doing. It's just building networks, teams, getting people that don't necessarily work like Half my clients are heads of HR, and I'm in a real estate. I really like that, just bringing the world together, kind of superpower to get us to all row together to solve this. I love that. That's the first time the Spidey Sense piece, the networking, has been picked on the show. And just a couple more real quick, Brian. If there's one person in the history of the world that you could spend the day with, who would it be? Oh, wow. I, I, it's interesting. I always went with, you know, like Albert Einstein to learn the science. I've been going more with psychologists and there's any number of them to just understand human behavior because it was a big gap in, in the way I was brought up and learned real estate. So whether it's Freud or whoever you want to choose, learning from all of them, it's opened up many new ways of thinking for me. I love it. And you're, you're right in my wheelhouse. I definitely would love to spend the day with Freud. No telling what would happen with that. And then last one here, Brian. What would be your biggest pet peeve that you see people do that just gets under underneath your skin? Well, being focused on human behavior, to me, it takes listening and understanding. My biggest pet peeve are, oh, I know why. I think that people that don't listen and think they know the answer. I have lots of stories. I, I constantly am surprised with my survey. Just one to kind of showcase we had in LinkedIn over in Asia and Hong Kong, they asked us, hey, can you add a question if they like the showers? Sure, we'll add in. But what was surprising to me is they, they like the showers, but we found all the people using them, their focus scores went down, their concentrated work. And we're like, what? I actually talked to a neuroscientist and he said, what temperature is the water? And I'm like, oh. And sure enough, we found the water was too hot. So... Everyone thinks that they know the answer why the focus scores may be down. No, actually, it's the temperature in your shower room. You know, be open to listening and hearing and, and look at data. Let that drive your thinking, too. There's a lot we can learn from all of this, and it's never what you think. So well put. And all I can think about, too, now is how popular all of these ice bath therapies are. Every time I hop on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram, it seems like every other picture is someone hopping into a tub of ice. So I'm going to have to figure out what that's all about too. But <laughs> Brian, we can't thank you enough for being with us today. Again, Brian Berthold of Cushman and Wakefield. You can learn more about the company and the work that they're doing, helping us think about the future of workspaces by going to cushmanandwakefield.com. 
And then also we've included in the comments a URL that you can go to to learn more about their experience per square foot survey. Brian, thanks again for being with us today. And we'll definitely have to have you on again in the future for a part two. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it very much. We'll be in touch. Ari, you're absolutely right that this was just one of those episodes where we could have kept going on and on. I wrote a book down just like you did. What were some of the things that stood out to you? Well, again, I, I, I've said it a couple of times already, experience per square foot is, is a kind of a whole new model. But I love the idea of, of the, Brian said something about the building needs to have a sense of purpose. We talk about purpose all the time. The building needs to have a sense of purpose fits right into what we talk about with why and discover your why. And, and, and what it builds is connections. I mean, your, your whole foundation is the four principles of connection. Uh, how do you build that connection without that? And, and we, we overlook this, but I, I, and this was the one thing that hit home. We, we can talk about collaboration, going back to work, having better teamwork, you know, the digital experience and all those things. But Brian mentioned this lack of serendipity is why people need to come back to work. But the problem is, is companies have structured work so much that, they're, that they actually took some of that serendipity away. So it's how do you bring that back? How do you bring that culture back? So again, so many things interweave, but I, I love, I think looking at the future of commercial space or an office space, could be small, big, of, of a conference model. You know, that I, I never went to a conference and said, where's my desk? <laughs> right. That's such a good point. Yeah. I mean, just like you, there were so many things today. The two I'll just share real briefly that are going to stick with me. He mentioned only 52% of people feel connected to the organization. And obviously you referenced it. You know, we talk about the four principles of connection, you know, our proprietary framework for how you build purposeful and meaningful cultures. You have to build connections that help connect people with themselves, with others, their role, and also with the organization, which includes the physical workspace. And they're doing tremendous work in that area. And we need more organizations to become aware of this. And we'll certainly be doing our part to share this with our community, because this is the direction we got to focus is helping to understand how we design workspaces that fulfill that promise of creating purposeful and meaningful work cultures. And then the other one was just in terms of how many buildings right now are really prepared for the future of work. And by future of work, we're talking just like this decade. Like by 2030, it sounds like he was saying roughly one third of buildings mm -hmm. kind of have the infrastructure to be able to do that. And the rest of them, there's going to be a third that, that needs some tweaks or upgrades. And there's going to be a third really that's like obsolete, where it's just going to have to be completely gutted, redesigned and things like that. And so thankfully, you know, we have Cushman and Wakefield out there that's helped leading the way to make database decisions around that to help executives understand how to utilize that workspace. But can't express our gratitude enough for Brian joining us today and dropping all of those insights. But until next time, Googleization Nation, if you haven't liked and subscribed to the podcast or left us a review, we'd appreciate it if you did. And until next time, I'm Jason Cochran signing off. And I'm Ira Wolf. Thanks, special thanks to Y Institute for partnering with us and sponsoring the episode. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation. And until next time, don't let the shift. Get your plans. Yeah.